Uh, it's good to be here, good to gather, as uh, many have said already before me, to, to come together as a church, to pray together, to sing together. This community of believers is so important for us, and even thinking about today's passage, how important community is, even though it's not something all of us gravitate towards or want, uh, it is something that we need. And so I, I pray that as you continue to come here to church, that you will make yourself available to friendship, put yourself out there, get to know people, um, ask questions, invite people over to your home, or spend time together in other places so that you will grow in that fellowship and that friendship because uh, we, do, we do need it. Uh, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 12 and going to verse 5 in chapter 7. And we'll read that here in a little bit, but I just want to give a little background here is that when we are coming into this passage, we're kind of stepping into a conversation that's already ongoing. I don't know if you've ever made a phone call to somebody's home and you maybe hear some arguing in the background. You're like, oh man, is this a bad time to talk right now? And you kind of realize there's other things going on that you just kind of happened into. And uh, there's quite a bit going on here in the church that Paul established in Corinth. He's had some correspondence with them, and now this is a more full response, this treatment that he's given here in this letter we call 1 Corinthians. It's not his first exchange with this church, but he's in a more fuller way addressing some of the issues that he's been hearing about as he's been in other cities doing other ministry. And so, you know, Paul had spent about 18 months in Corinth, discipling them, establishing the church, and then went away and uh, as we do, we have problems, we struggle. So um, though we do not struggle in the same way the church in Corinth struggled, we do have our own struggles. And the medicine that uh, Paul gives for the church here, I think, is very applicable to us today. And this, uh, this chapter, this section, is pretty heavy dealing with sexual sin, and uh, maybe you came out of a background where you, you had no kind of education about that other than what the public school provided you. The church maybe didn't talk about it or maybe you weren't raised in church, so you have no kind of concept of what does God care about, uh, about sexual things. Uh, for myself, I grew up um, in, in the church. I came to Christ in middle school, and I kind of uh, grew up in what's been referred to now as the purity culture in that uh, the church really made a big uh, focus on virginity, on sexual purity. Uh, a lot of don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And um, all that was, was good, but I think sometimes what was missing is the why don't do this. And what I find so compelling about Paul's address here to the church and God's addressed to us, just generally speaking, is that behind every no is a greater yes. Behind every no is a greater yes. And you know, as uh, if you've had the privilege of parenting kids, as kids are, uh, you know, learning things and you're, uh, you're correcting problems, you, you as a parent, you say no a lot. No to this, no to this, no to this, no to this. And they don't really kind of the mind yet the development to understand what's the bigger yes. And so you just end up doing, you know, you end up saying no a lot. And sometimes it just ends up with because I said so. (laughs) 
And as a parent, you have the authority to do that, the position to do that, as God does with us. Because I said so is perfectly fine for God to say, and that's perfectly enough reason for us to obey. And yet, God doesn't stop there. And and as parents, uh, we hope that we, as our kids get older, can understand more that we do take more time to nuance our no's with a better yes. And sometimes we find out as our kids become practicing lawyers, or it seems, (laughs) they are practicing their skills of argumentation and defending themselves and presenting a case. Sometimes we realize that our no's are kind of weak. If we are honest with ourselves and we realize we get in a conversation with our teenage kids, maybe like, oh, okay, well, maybe that no isn't all that great or there isn't a better yes behind my no. And okay, you, you, know, you, you end up having more of a, of a, of a dialogue with, with your kids instead of just a no. But here as Paul is addressing the church in Corinth, he's giving them uh, some no's to things that were perfectly fine for them to do previous to becoming Christians because there is a much greater yes in Jesus. And so I I pray overall, as we look at this passage, that you will see that whatever restrictions God put on us are for our good. They are for our good because ultimately they drive us closer to him. And so if you would stand as we read 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 12 through 7, 5. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both, one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take then a member of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, It is good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Let us pray. Father, we, we thank you that you are good, that you love us,
that you're constantly calling us to be with yourself. And I thank you, God, that you know us, you understand our struggles, and you provide always for us. So help us to understand your word and your way and your will, and that we draw closer and closer to you. Help us to be satisfied in you, Jesus. Amen. Be seated. So uh, the main points I want to make here, and if you have a better one at lunchtime, uh, feel free to text me or email me. Jesus has redeemed you from the pits of hell and has given you a new purpose with priestly garments. Jesus has redeemed us from the pits of hell and given us a new purpose with priestly garments. This is a, a way I thought about uh, basically coming to a conclusion of this passage of this section of scripture. So the first, first main point coming out of this is that uh, you are purchased or you are redeemed. Those are really words that can be used in, in exchange of each other. But this idea of being purchased or redeemed, uh, these verses 19 and 20 at the end of chapter 6 really are the heart of this passage. Everything flows. Every reason that Paul has for correcting the actions of the Corinthians and of us flow out of these two verses. I'm going to just read them again. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. Now to say that we are purchased or redeemed is to say that we belong to someone other than ourselves. And uh, we probably have some understanding of reading the Bible that we, when we were born into this world, we were not born uh, autonomous. We are not free agents. We are not completely on our own looking for some kind of a system to belong to. But the scripture says that when we are born, we are born opposed to God and that we belong to the father of this world, that is the devil. So we, we are not in some kind of a neutral position. I know when people argue against Christianity, they kind of assume that we're all in some kind of neutral position. We are free agents. But we either belong to God or we belong to the devil. And so this idea of slavery, this kind of language of slavery, of being purchased or bought, is God purchasing us. He is buying us and bringing us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He he is bringing us from death into life. We are purchased, we are being redeemed from the pits of hell. Our, our path surely was for destruction, to be separated from God for eternity. And by the blood of Jesus, he redeemed us and brought us into his kingdom. So now we are, if you will, a slave to Christ. We are no longer a slave to the flesh, a slave to our former way of living, but we now belong to God. If you want to make a note here, this is uh, extremely important for us to know that we are not our own. We belong to someone else, and that is God through Christ. In 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, listen to this rich language. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from our ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect. It was the blood of Christ that redeemed you. Amen? 
And that was a, a costly price that Christ paid to die on the cross. That cross is way too nice. That is way too nice of a cross to think about what Jesus endured to be beaten, to be whipped, to be pierced, to be hung on that cross by three nails for us so that we could have a new life in him by his blood. And so Paul says, since we have been purchased, we have a new owner, so glorify God with your body. So I want to make three points here about how we can honor God with our body. And then in the, in the next section, as we talk about uh, being priests, I want to talk about how we can honor God in another way as well. But the, the word body here is mentioned several times in this passage. And the, the church in Corinth, again, this, this church has no concept of Judaism. The, these are not people who have an idea uh, of organized religion. Uh, all of their kind of thoughts about uh, religion are, have to do with, uh, with the temples, right? With the, with the pagan gods, with Roman gods, Greek gods. And uh, this idea of Gnosticism where the body is separate from the mind. Uh, so in their culture, the body really meant nothing. It had no significance, no value. And so in their mind, they could have a dichotomy of thinking, hey, I can do whatever I want with my body. It doesn't affect my mind and the way I think about myself. So they were very careless with their body, why they felt no guilt or shame in joining themselves with a prostitute because that was their lifestyle. That's what they were taught to do. They were discipled in that kind of culture. They did not associate that with doing something negative against God or this new faith, this new Christianity. And so Paul needs to make the argument that your body is a part of who you are. Your body is significant. So Paul is laboring to make a case for the body. So number one, honor God with your body. Uh, going all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, we see in the garden that when God scoops up some dirt from the ground, he what? He forms a body. And that that body is made in his image, in his likeness. And then after God creates the body, he breathes his spirit into that body. He gives it life. It wasn't like God created a spirit and then just kind of looked around randomly to find something to put that spirit into. No, God carefully curated a body the way he wanted to be, and he created the body male and female. He created them. But sadly, in our culture, we have a lot of struggles with our bodies. And there's, there's three, three main ways we struggle with our bodies. One is that we often don't think we're beautiful. We don't agree with God that we are beautiful. I saw a statistic recently that 80% of people don't think that they are beautiful. They don't like their bodies. When they get up in the morning and look in the mirror, they are not like, yes, I look amazing. In Psalm 139, David says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that God knit us together. And um, we, we sometimes agree more with our culture than with God, right? That's one of our problems, isn't it? When we agree more with our culture than with God. And, you know, we see the magazine covers, we see the billboards, you know, the endless uh, scrolling of things on social media. 
And we have bought into a standard that society has given us about how men and women should look. Now, when I was a kid, men were left out of this. Uh, it was always the girls that, you know, didn't have a lot of clothes on and looked a certain way. Guys could be any shape or size, and they always had a suit on. <laughs> now they drug men into this. And the men are just wearing underwear and have abs and all this kind of stuff. Where's the dad bod out there? Man. But our culture does not set the standard for beauty. God does. And that may be something we need to remind ourselves a thousand times a day because of how much in our face culture is telling us something different about our bodies. But God gave you a body he created, and God does not make mistakes. He is perfect. He loves you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, brother and sister in Christ. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. God loves you. And so we honor God in our body by agreeing with him that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We do not hate our bodies, but we love it and we take care of our bodies. I, I just have a, a small illustration here. This is just a, a styrofoam cup and it's a teacup, okay? And, you know, if, I were to, if we were to have drinks afterwards and we serve some drinks in these styrofoam cups, what happens to these cups at the end when you're done with your drink? You throw it away, people would be ripping up into pieces, poking holes in it, right? You wouldn't have a lot of value in this. You would see this as disposable and you would just throw it away. But if somebody brought out their teacups and they unpackaged them out of the boxes and unwrapped them from the bubble wrap they were in and they presented these out here, some of you wouldn't let your kids use them. Some of you might not let your husbands use them. <laughs> you would treat this cup very differently, this teacup than the styrofoam cup, wouldn't you? Because you associate value with this. And so we need to think about, do I, do I associate myself, my body, as a styrofoam cup or as a teacup? Do I see myself as precious the same way that God does? I'll be careful not to knock that over. Okay, so just a, just a little just visual thing for us to be thinking about is that we are precious and valuable. Uh, secondly, the way we uh, can honor God with our bodies is to discipline our body. The, the Corinthians were making an argument that what we do with our body doesn't matter. You know, if it was legal for them, they felt free to go ahead and do it. But God gives us a different standard. We have been joined with Christ. Christ now is living in us. His spirit lives in us. And so now everything that we do, we are bringing Jesus with us. I don't know if you ever had that warning as a kid Maybe you're somewhere and you're having a conversation and somebody says, oh, hey, would you talk to your mother like that? Would you, would you do that thing in your home that you're doing right now? It's sort of a thing to kind of get us to slow down and think about something. Uh, there's this idea of a synaptic gap in that people try to reduce the amount of time you, you see something and respond to it, right? They're trying to just wipe that away. It's sort of like, you know, hanging out with middle school boys, okay? And I'll pick on them a little bit just because, hey, God is doing a thing, at a work in their bodies, and they're not known for having the most self-control or, or thoughtfulness, right? We're just kind of responding what's happening. 
this is the way Satan wants to work. The devil wants to tempt us by presenting something and then to act on it right away. You know, marketers do the same thing. If you've ever gone through a, a sales pitch, they want you to buy that thing right now. Sign a line right now. Don't take more time to think about it. Don't take more time to consult people. Do this thing right now. And in our bodies, we have desires. And our bodies speak to us sometimes and say, hey, you need to meet this desire. And God is saying, no, don't meet the desire of the flesh that does not honor me. Discipline your body. Say no to those sinful desires. Flee sexual immorality. Why? Because we are joined to Christ. We do not join Christ as something that is immoral, something that is of the flesh. No, because we have a better yes in our fellowship with Christ. So everything we do should be motivated by the fact that I have Christ with me. And I want to honor Jesus, honor our relationship, honor the fact that he chose me to be a part of his family. In 1 Corinthians 10, it says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can endure it. You may have been raised one way, lived a certain way, but now in Christ, you're called to live a totally different way. You're called to be distinct from the world. And the, the Corinthians, for sure, if they were going to live moral lives, if they were going to live lives that honored God, they were going to stand out big time in their culture. And I think we can see in our culture as well, if you live a pure life, if you honor God by living either with celibacy or infidelity, you're going to stand out. And that's exactly what God is calling us into, but he's given us power to be able to do it by his spirit. So discipline our bodies to be obedient to God, to honor him. And I think part of a way that will really help us to do that, one is, of course, to read scripture, to understand what God says about us, what he says about the devil and the way he tries to approach us, but also to come into community. Oftentimes when we struggle with sin, it's because we have not confessed it, we have not brought it into the light, we have not invited other people into our struggle. Christianity is a community project. And so if you feel like, hey, you keep coming to the same things and not having victory over it, please reach out. Reach out to somebody. We'd love to pray with you, to encourage you, to help you to get over whatever your struggles might be. Third, the third thing is your body is not finished. Your body is important because it is not finished. When we come to Christ and receive his spirit, uh, we, 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 get, we receive his spirit in us, but we have the same body. It's like uh, we get a new operating system, but we have the same old hardware. But God is not finished with this body. One day it is going to be redeemed. All right, we think of Jesus when he was on the cross and he died and he was buried and what? He rose again. He rose again and he had a resurrected body. His body was resurrected it was redeemed. And we too, the same thing is going to happen for us is that when we die, we will be resurrected. We just think about our, our sweet friend, Kathy Dressel, who just had a funeral service for her on Friday here. That she no longer has to deal with the effects of sin in this body. 
that she is renewed. And so when we have issues that happen with our body, when we have sicknesses, when we have things that are, um, you know, injuries, or we know our bodies don't work the same that they used to, we know that it's just a reminder to us of Adam and Eve, the rebellion against God. It's a reminder to us that we too have sinned against God, but God will redeem. He does not keep those things against us, but he offers forgiveness and we have freedom of that. And then we have the hope of a resurrected, a new body. So I want to turn to, to the second part of this passage. Really, the second point for me is that you are a priest. Now, for some of you, that brings up a certain imagery that maybe the only kind of contact you have with a priest is a Catholic priest. And, and I don't want you to think about that association at all because... In Catholicism, actually, the priest does some of the same things that Paul is trying to argue against here in that there's some kind of hierarchy of working your way toward God or there's a restricted access to God. Because what Paul really is highlighting for us is that we have no restrictions to God now. God's Spirit has come into us. We are priests. What do priests do? Priests assist with worship. Priests have direct access to God. Priests help other people to worship God. And we are those people now. We are priests. In 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. 1 Peter 2.9, I hope you spent some time with that this week. Both men and women, any age, if you have come to faith in Christ, his spirit indwells you, you are a part of this priesthood. In Revelation 5.10, it says, you have made them to be a kingdom of priests and to serve God, and they will reign on the earth. And so as a part of this union that we have with Christ, we are priests. We are not our own. This is part of the new purpose that we have, is that we have a purpose to worship God. I really thought about this passage. One of the ways I was thinking about it was this is a worship text. Whether we're going to worship self or we're going to worship God with our bodies. And so we here as priests, and, and this isn't, to me, um, it's going to sound a little bit clunky, okay? But we're, we're taking this transition uh, that we are priests, and now Paul is talking about how we are to honor God with our bodies in marriage. And so this first part of chapter 7, 1 through 5, is specifically in the context of marriage. And so we're, we're going to focus on that next week. Uh, the section of scripture is on singleness, okay? So for those that are single, you know, hang on. Uh, if there's marriage in the future, this will be helpful for you. If marriage is not in your future, pray for those that are. Uh, Paul says later on that uh, in marriage brings trouble. Some people can say amen to that. Some would be nervous too. That's fine. But we are priests, uh, again, in the sense that we have direct access to God. And I love this theme throughout Scripture that God desires to be with His people. And, and I, want, I want you to, to know that and to be reminded of that, that God loves you. He desires to be with you. He created you in his image so that you could have relationship together. God is a relational God. And in the garden, 
I think of Genesis 1 and 2 as a temple text and that God is preparing a place for himself to dwell with his people. But then Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And then we see in uh, Exodus that God is coming to his people and he builds what? He builds a tabernacle for himself to dwell in. The people do not have the spirit. The people are not cleansed. The people can't be with God because of their unholiness. So God builds a portable temple, has a a portable temple built for himself so that people can come near him, but not to him lest they be killed. And then God has Solomon build what? Build a temple so that God can dwell with his people in the temple. And then the next iteration, we see that God sends his son, Jesus, the God man to earth. Remember, Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. He was talking about his body. God is coming to his people as the God man, as Jesus Christ. And then in Acts 1 and 2, this beautiful scene that we now live in this this era where God poured out his spirit on his people. I'm not coming to them in a tabernacle. I'm not coming to them in a temple. I'm coming directly to the people as close as I could from when the original intention of creation happened so that God could dwell with us. The greater yes for us in saying no to sin is that we have this relationship with God, this intimacy with God, and we would do well to protect that so we can have, as we have this union with him, that we are not clouding it with our sin. And so Paul turns his attention to those that are married because he realizes, hey, we, we are created as sexual beings. God created us in, in the way he created us as sexual beings. Adam and Eve, he created, he said, the two shall be joined. The two shall be one flesh. And so obviously Paul, though himself did not get married, he recognizes that some are to be married. Hey, do not, do not sin but instead get married if you have this desire for intimacy in that way. Not everybody does, but if you do, find a wife. Women find a husband. And so let me just I'm going to reread these five verses again in, in chapter 7. And what I want to do is um, I want to just give a few, um, few observations, maybe a few uh, bits of encouragement to you as, as married couples. In verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should, have, should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves one to another. And perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So in our marriage, there are different topics that can cause hardship, cause disagreement, cause frustration, right? And uh, intimacy and finances tend to be among the top two 
that commonly come out and are talked about. And I think it's important for us to recognize what God is doing with this, right? One is that our union together, as a man and woman come together in covenant marriage, our union together, this oneness, Ephesians chapter 5, this is a representation of Christ and the church. Your marriage is a representation of the relationship between Christ and the church, that unity, that bond, that being together, that closeness, that intimacy is like Christ and his church. And of course, in Ephesians 5 is the passage where it gives some specific marital instruction about how wives and husbands are to interact with each other. But if we are not in this monogamous male-female marriage, then God is calling us to be celibate, to refrain from any sexual activity. But within this marriage, then as we come together as one, We still are these two individual people, but we are coming together as one. It doesn't immediately put our minds to the same. It doesn't match our desires perfectly. And so this uh, requires a lot of communication, a lot of love, a lot of patience, a lot of care for each other. But as God is putting us into this situation of marriage, he is then causing us to be dependent upon him to make this marriage work well. We know that based on our own ability, our own desires, our own capabilities, marriage will not work out well. At best, it'll be some kind of a business relationship. But we will not have love, we will not have joy, we will not have satisfaction in our marriage if Christ is not in the middle of it. In Hebrews 13, 4, it says, Let marriage be held in high honor among all. Let all, sorry, let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous, Hebrews 13, 4. So here, here's a couple guidelines uh, that I think could be helpful in areas of intimacy uh, in marriage. And there, 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 are, there are many, but here are three. One is be a giver and not a taker. Don't let intimacy be an area where you become self-centered. This essentially is what all sin does. Sin puts focus on self I have a need, I have this desire, I need this, and then it puts you in an attitude of, if I don't get this, then bad things are going to happen, right? Then we are a taker. And that's a bad place to be in your marriage when you, when you are a taker. It puts a lot of pressure on the other person. And then what happens is when you become a taker, you never are satisfied. Takers never become satisfied, and so you just need more and more and more and more. It can lead to abusive situations. But if you are a giver, if you follow a lot of other scriptures to outdo one another and honor each other, love your neighbor as yourself, look to do good to others. If you apply those things, that kind of concept to your marriage and think, how can I please my spouse? What does my spouse need? What does my spouse want? And I put myself in the role of being a giver then that is a totally different state of mind. And you know what? To do that kind of thing, we need to ask Christ for his help. We need to ask the Spirit for his help. And this has, obviously, broader applications from just physical intimacy. But in your marriage, to look, to lift up your spouse, to want good for them, to think, hey, my spouse is in a much better situation because they're married to me, to the glory of God. So, uh, So look to be a giver. Uh, Secondly, 
intimacy requires transparency and trust. This physical union between a man and woman is, is sacred. And it will expose rough spots in our relationship. Because, uh, because of the intimacy that is required, because of the vulnerability that happens when two people are coming together. I mean, it's just such a precious image uh, in Genesis 1 and 2 when it says that Adam and Eve were naked and they felt no shame. I mean, the absolute, one of the most absolute purest moments in all of Scripture is Adam and Eve being naked together and feeling no shame. What, what a great uh, image of what it looks like to be close to Christ and not have any guilt or anything that is built up in us. And so as you come into this sacred moment of intimacy, that is going to be a time when things come out, uh, unforgiven sin or problems in the day, hardships, whatever, whatever it is, those things are going to come out. And those are not things just to pass over, to rush through. Those are things to really take sincerely, take earnestly, talk through those things, resolve those things. Though you might not want to deal with those in the moment, hey, what's going on outside? What's that noise? Or hey, did that bill get paid? Real mood killers. (laughs) But a way that we love our spouse is to prepare for our time of intimacy together. That means being motivated to love and care 24-7, not just when you are feeling like it. Uh, It it is true in some senses that this is like uh, a crockpot situation, that, you know, intimacy is not a microwave. It just doesn't happen. It, It takes time. It takes effort. It takes care. But you can be working on that, keeping that crockpot plugged in by really loving and caring, being thoughtful, helping to remove other obstacles, other things that might be building up in the relationship. And I think one of the, the best things that you can do in your marriage is to have a commitment to pray together every day. When you come together in another intimate way of prayer, you are bearing your soul to each other. You are lifting one another up. You are sharing your burdens. And you can bet if there's any kind of a distance in the relationship, if there's any sin that needs to be confessed against each other, That's going to come out when you try to pray together, right? Because you need to have a clear conscience to truly be able to pray. And so praying together will help you in this area of transparency and trust and ultimately in the area of intimacy. The third thing, uh, third and final thing I want to mention here is that uh, intimacy in marriage is a tool for sanctification. It is one of God's tools for sanctification, so be sanctified by it. Do not grow frustrated by it. Do not get upset about it. Don't throw in the towel over it. But see the work that God is doing by shaping you to be more like his son, Jesus. Yes, there are times in our marriage when we want something and our spouse doesn't. And we can be all kinds of upset about it, or we can respond in different ways. But respond in Galatians chapter 5 by the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. And also remember 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, about what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love builds up. It keeps no records of wrong. Love overcome. It endures. These are really good 
scriptures to rehearse and to remember as we're thinking about our spouses and our time together in our home. But I wanted to read you this from um, the devotional, this, uh, His Utmost for His Highest. And the, the worship team can come up if you guys want. I'm just going to read this um, passage and pray for us. Uh, I shouldn't have taken my glasses off to read this. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and, I, and I, I think I've mentioned this before, but I was kind of slow to this fact that God was using our mismatched sexual desires to sanctify, to help me put more attention to my wife, to love her better, to really care for her in ways that I hadn't before. And then just seeing the bigger picture of what God is doing in our lives, that he is, he is restricting us. God is not giving us everything that we want. God is not our grandparent, okay? God, God is our father. God doesn't have grandkids, Okay, God, God is our Father. He disciplines us. But we need to trust and understand that what God has for us is the absolute best. The Bible says often, do not be deceived. Don't be like Adam and Eve, your spiritual parents, who were led into deception by the devil. They were led out of the most perfect environment you possibly could have been, in absolute perfect harmony with God. And they thought the grass was possibly greener outside of the best garden the universe has ever known. They were deceived. They bought the lie. They took the bait. So God is saying to us, do not take the bait. The best thing we can have in his life is, is to be in Christ. And so God is often testing us to see where our allegiance is. Where is our loyalty? God, are we committed to you? He's committed to us. Are we committed to him? And so he will test us to see what comes out. And for some of us, one of the hardest tests we face is this area of sexuality, sexual desires. And if I don't get what I want, how am I going to respond? So I I thought this was really good um, in this devotion. It's from February 6th in the Utmost for His Highest devotional. It's out of Psalm 118, 27. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Basically, what this is talking about is if you have a desire, if you have something that is leading you into sin, put it on the altar. Let it be burned up. Give it up so it is not taking you away from your relationship with God. You must be willing to be placed on the altar and go through the fire. Willing to experience what the altar represents burning, purification, and separation for only one purpose, the elimination of every desire and affection not grounded in or directed towards God. But if you don't eliminate it, God does. You bind the sacrifice to the horns of the altar and see to it that you don't wallow in self-pity once the fire begins. After you have gone through the fire, there will be nothing that will not be able to trouble or depress you. When another crisis arises, you will realize that the things cannot touch you the way they used to. What fire lies ahead in your life? Let's stand and pray, and then we will end our service in singing. Father, we thank you that you are good, that you love us, that the fence around the playground is not meant to keep people from having fun, but it's to enhance the enjoyment that you have for us. 
We remember Jesus as our shepherd in John 10, that you came to give us life and give us life to the full. But it's the devil who comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. So help us, God, to refine our desires, to put them on you. We pray as husbands and wives that we would honor our spouses, we would love and care for them well, putting their desires ahead of our own. We pray, God, as a church, we will come together more and more, even closer as a community of believers, encouraging one another as we are a priesthood in this life you've called us to live here on earth. And we long for the day when you come back and redeem us in a more full way. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.